Perfect. All right. So that was the Song of Mary, otherwise known in Christian tradition as the Magnificat. Now, if you're happy and you know it, what do you do? Okay. Very good. And if you're happy and you know it, you stamp your feet. Well, when Mary's happy and she knows it, she sings a song. She's overjoyed at this stage. And it is part of the Jewish and Israelite tradition to sing. The reason that we have the book of Psalms is because that's what they sung. The reason that we have Miriam front and center after Moses has led those over the Red Sea is because we sing when we are happy, we sing when we are sad, we sing when we are terrified, and we sing when we are overjoyed. And that's why it's so wonderful that before we get to the message, we sing together. So when we sing Mary Did We Know, we all sing it out. When we sing Come All Ye Faithful, we all sing it out. When we sing We Three Kings, we all sing it out because there is a shared feeling amongst the people of God. And so that's why in the Catholic Church especially, the Magnificat is sang. It's because it is a, not just a song of hope and joy, but it is also a song of saying one thing that is true is that God will change the world. Right now, there are people who are sitting, who are abusing power, who are on the top, and one day God will bring them down. The proud will be brought down, and the humble will be lifted up. The first will be last, and the last will be first. And so that is why Mary is overjoyed in terms of this song. Now, it is a very, very important to go to the beginning of Luke and to try and see what Luke is trying to do. So at the beginning of Luke, Luke chapter 1, before he starts his gospel, he's talking to a man by the name of Theophilus. And he says to Theophilus, I am writing down what is important. Now Luke is someone who knew the story of Jesus, who had spoken to the disciples, who was part of the story, and he makes very sure that everything that he's written down has a specific purpose for being there. And that is what he does. Now, if we think about it, the last Old Testament book was written about 300, 350 years before the New Testament began, before Jesus comes into the world. Now, if you go to the Old Testament, there are big heroes with big stories. Guys like Moses and Joshua and Abraham and Joseph and David and Solomon. And all of them have big stories about how they were able to build the Israelite nation. But in those 300 years, since those wonderful big stories the Greeks have come and pulverized the Israelites. The Romans have come in and subjected the Israelites. They are being made small. And so it is, in, it is not insignificant. It is very significant that Luke starts Luke with focusing on two women. Can you see Abraham, man, Moses, man, David, man, Joshua, man. Always men, big men. 
But yet Luke starts with Elizabeth. Elizabeth is aging. And her and her husband, Zechariah, they have been wanting a child. And so in the beginning of Luke, what Luke expresses is that Elizabeth is with child. And Zechariah is overjoyed, so much so that because of this encounter, he is now not able to speak and has to sign it out. Can you imagine someone with no words having to show that joy? Absolutely incredible. It must be absolutely incredible. And I know all about that because I have a son who doesn't speak, yet he can show me joy in everything that he does. And so I can just imagine the story of Zechariah and how he tells Elizabeth that this is true and Elizabeth knows that she is to bear a child. But then the next frame is moving from Elizabeth onto Mary. Mary is a peasant girl. Now Nazareth is outside of the province. It's outside of the head of where there's culture, where there's economics, where there's work. And just outside, there is a place where the laborers live. So if you think of Cape Town, no one really can afford to stay in Cape Town Central. So we all have to stay in the suburbs. Now, in those days, there were no suburbs. There were just workers' villages. And in fact, the good chance that Mary stayed in a cave that was altered into a home. This is how poor the start of Jesus' life was. Not only was he poor, but his mother had just been promised to a man named Joseph. Now, that happens really early on in a girl's life. The moment that she's able to conceive, she is then promised to a man. Most times, they do not have a choice. It has been predetermined from the moment they were born that this will be your husband in order for us to travel up the social rank. So Mary has not had a voice until now. At the age of 12 or 13, she is promised to Joseph, and then suddenly she is visited by an angel, the angel Gabriel, who says, you are to be the mother of God. You are to carry the child who is the Savior that has been spoken about through all of the Old Testament. Now, I do not even begin to comprehend what she must have been feeling, what she must have been thinking, how confused she must have been. How uncertain she definitely was. Because here she was, as a 12 or 13 year old, having to absorb this information. But also, that she was told that, she says, but I can't have a child because I have not yet been married. And so the angel says, no, you shall give birth as a virgin. And so it will be God's child. Now, how do you go to your future husband where you have not slept together and say, I am pregnant? How do you go to your mother and father who know you have not yet met and been with your husband-to-be and say, I am pregnant? And how will they disguise this pregnancy in the community that knows that you are not yet wed? 
This child must have been wrecked with doubt, must have been so insecure, must have been trying to pray that the world will swallow her up because although she believes that this angel was real, there must have been so much doubt. But one incredible thing is that she decides that once she has heard this news, she is going to visit someone who she trusts and also someone who has been given a miraculous pregnancy. And that person who she trusts and who she knows and who she believes in is a woman by the name of Elizabeth, who is an older cousin. Now, obviously, they had big families back then, and so there was probably a big age difference. And she decides that once she's heard this news, she needs to go and talk to someone. She can't talk to her mother or to her father or people in the community because do you know what the price for sleeping with someone outside of wedding was? Death. There's no way she would have gone and confided in anyone there. So what she does is she takes a nine-day journey, nine days with this uncertainty, nine days with the secret, nine days living in fear that maybe someone will know or someone has heard. And she journeys to Jerusalem, to just outside of Jerusalem, where she meets her cousin Elizabeth. Now, can you imagine for nine days, this going off in her head, all the thoughts, all the doubts, all those inner conversations, and she arrives at Elizabeth, and this is what Elizabeth says. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. When she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, so at this point, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you amongst women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting has reached my ear, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill the, his promises to her. What a bullet of truth. What a realization that it wasn't just in her mind. It wasn't just something she made up. It wasn't just something that was uh, a story that she somehow believed. But this was the truth. And Elizabeth confirms that she is the blessed mother of the Lord. Now, can you imagine this child's life from that moment on, knowing that she was chosen and that was the truth? And that's why the Magnificat was written. So, an interesting thing about the Magnificat is it's very similar in style to another song that was in the, in the Scriptures. It comes pretty closely from the song of Hannah. Now, Hannah was a woman who would constantly go to the temple, praying to God, asking God to make her with child. She couldn't bear a child, and she really wanted one. And so she went to God constantly in the temple to pray that he would bless her. Until one day, she was blessed. 
She had always said, if I have a child, I will dedicate that child to your service, God. And that child was Samuel. And we all have heard a little bit about the prophet Samuel and him being the one who dedicates David. Massive man in the story of God. And so very similarly, Mary also structures the song of Mary very closely to the song of Hannah. But it starts with an absolutely joyous outburst. And so let's hear the start of the Magnificat. And it says, and Mary said, my soul glorifies, uh, sorry, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Now, the name of that song is Magnificat magnify. So when we magnify something, what does it do? Becomes bigger. So what Mary does is she magnifies God. She makes him big in her life. She lifts him up. She exalts him. She puts him up as the most important thing in her life. And then once we magnify God, what does God then do to Mary? Also lifted up, also magnified. For you have seen me a servant and you have lifted me up. The Magnificat is all about if we lift up God, God will lift us up. If we make God the top priority, God will show us his plan, his purpose, his value, his worth for our lives. So that is the the nature of living with God. The more that we glorify him, the more we are used. The less we glorify him, the less our story gels with the story of God that is so much bigger than ours. And so Elizabeth, Elizabeth Mary starts the Magnificat with that. But then it starts off really nice, really sweet, really lovely. And then it doesn't. Now, let me tell you that the Magnificat was banned in certain countries where there was war and revolution. So in Central, Afri in Central America, there were lots of oppressive regimes. And so what those people would do is they would quote the Magnificat to say that God will bring down the powerful and raise up the poor. He would send the rich away empty and he would fill the poor with good things. And that was their marching call. That was their, um, the energy of the revolution was coming from the Magnificat. And so many uh, regimes banned the Magnificat. In America, a lot of those who were slaves in the South would use the Magnificat to pray to God that one day this whole thing would turn and no longer would they be slaves, but they would receive their freedom and they would use the words of Mary to pray for that revolution. Now, let's just read that part of the scripture that is not that pretty, that nice, that lovely. So from verse 50, it says, His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. For he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. 
He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Now Rome was big and Rome was strong and Israel was poor and Israel was weak. But what Mary says is that I know the God of the Old Testament that used those that weren't strong to break through and to build this nation. He used David, the smallest, the youngest, the weakest. He uses Moses, the one who stutters and can't get his message across. He uses Gideon, who is hiding in a wine press. Those who are small and insignificant and humble, they are the ones that are lifted and used to build history in the Israelite nation. And so... When Mary uses the word, the arm of God, there is very, very big imagery throughout the whole of Scripture that God uses his arms to lift up those who are holy and to break down those who are not fulfilling God's mission. And so when he talks about his arm, it is a metaphor for what God is going to do. Now, He lifts up the merciful, the poor, the humble, the lowly, and then actively opposes the proud, the rich, the arrogant, the merciless. So those of us who humble ourselves, those of us who are filled with mercy, God will lift up. God will help your plans. God will build on your purpose. God will make your dreams alive in his kingdom. Those of us who choose the way of the world, we will be brought down. Now, there are many companies in this, in this world, in this country, where they hoard as much profit as they possibly can. And in order to hoard as much profit as they can, they decide, well, they need to retrench as many as they can. That is not merciful. That is merciless. There have been pharmaceutical companies that have inflated their prices so that they are able to maintain profits, yet people who desperately need those medicines are not getting those medicines. That is merciless. God will actively oppose all of those who think they are great, and he will bring up those who are currently without anything. That is just the way of God. And that's what we need to be aware of. Leaders who use their power and influence to enrich themselves and do nothing to uplift the poor and the vulnerable. Do we know any of those leaders in the world? (laughs) Not many around today. But what God will do is God will actively oppose those. He will bring them down and he will lift up those who need because God will want the merciful to be lifted up, to be raised, to be exalted. Now, in the same day as Mary has the child Jesus, in this incredibly humble way, there is also a king who is filled with 
pride and arrogance and has got more riches than what we could ever, ever compute. And his name was Herod. And in fact, he was so insecure that he called himself Herod the Great. Now, how insecure must you be if you add your surname as the Great? So Herod the Great was the one who killed off some of his wives because he thought they were trying to take his power. He killed off some of his children because he thought they were trying to take his power. And then he hears about a king that it was to be born in Bethlehem. And so he makes sure that there is a slaughter of the innocence of those under the age of three. Now, the interesting thing about Herod the Great is how many churches are dedicated to him? Go through the whole of Israel, the whole of Russia, the whole of China, the whole of South America. Not a single temple that is dedicated to Herod the Great. How many buildings are dedicated to Jesus Christ? Millions. Jesus was, written, was raised up. He was lifted up. He was exalted. He was glorified. He was magnified. Because he came from the poor, because he came from the empty, because he came from the bottom. Herod the Great was actively opposed by God and brought down. And in fact, I feel so sorry for him. He died of kidney disease and gangrene to the genitalia. That's one heck of a way to go. Now this is good news. Is that those who think that they get away with injustice will never get away. Those who think they can be merciless will be actively opposed by God. Those of us that are filled with kindness, compassion, gentleness, humility, we will be exalted. We will be lifted up. And God's plan will include us. Now, the word for mercy in the Greek is ilios. It is also in the Hebrew known as chesed. And these two words are pretty much made up of compassion, kindness, goodness, and compelling love for others. Now that's what being merciful is. And in my time in St. Mark's, and I mean it's now uh, almost 20 years, that's what I've seen. Compassion, kindness, goodness, gentleness, compelling love for others. We have a mission statement which is God's love reaching out. That is mercy at its truest and most pure. And so we need to be living that out. Micah says these words, He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires from us. And what is that but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. Those three things, that is what God requires. For us to love justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. If we can do those three things, that is what God requires. God will lift us up if we do what God requires. So let me take a couple of examples of what mercy looks like. And how if we are merciful, God will empower us to be able to be the revolution that he speaks about through Mary's Magnificat. So, first one is I want to tell a story about five businessmen 
was told by a guy by the name of Adam Hamilton. And so he's a minister in Kansas City, and I, I listened to him quite a lot. And he told this one story. He said, there were five businessmen running through Chicago's O'Hare Airport. Now, if you've gone through the airport, you know that it's helter-skelter. There's just lots of people coming and going, coming and going. And also, if you are late for a flight, forget about it. You run. Because you know that, I mean, I'm now doing a lot of traveling. And I know if I'm late for my flight, that means that I don't get to see my family before they go to sleep. And that's going to be trouble for me. But also, it's because I love my family and I want to be with them. So these five businessmen are running through the airport. They're carrying those, those bags, you know, that roll off. And they're busy running, running, running. And then one of the five knocks over a fruit cart. Now, I'm sure that, you know, sort of, we don't really have that in South Africa. But in America, there are fruit carts where you have apples and oranges and bananas. And people are selling it uh, in front of the airport. And so as they're running, a couple of them knock into this fruit cart. And the apples fall over and the bananas fall over. And they keep on running, and they say, oh, we're so sorry. And the trader's obviously incredibly upset. Uh, but look, guys, you know, so sorry, so sorry. Um, but we're late, we're late. And so they keep on running. One of them, though, has that niggling feeling of guilt. And we need to be sometimes listening to our guilt, don't we? And so this man goes, ah, okay, I know that I was in the wrong. So he turns around, he tells the other four, keep on going, keep on going. I'm going to go sort this out. So he comes back and he's with his little wheelie case, puts his case down and now starts to help to put the, the fruit back. And he also realizes that a lot of the fruit that fell on the ground has now been bruised. It can't really be sold. So he turns to the lady who's now picking these up and scrambling. He goes, look, I'm so sorry. It was my fault. There's probably about 20 pieces of fruit that have been damaged. I'm going to pay for them. And as she lifts up her head, he sees two things. The first one is that she's been crying. The second one is that she's blind. And so she has been scrambling, not knowing what's going on. And so he comes and helps her and says, no, please go sit down. And he puts all the things back, gives her the money for the pieces of fruit that have been damaged and takes those and throws them away. And then he comes back to her and he says, listen, I'm so sorry. And she turns to him and says, are you Jesus? So he says, uh, no, Jesus would never have knocked over the fruit cart and then kept on running. He says, no, why on earth would you think I am Jesus? So she said, well, when I was trying to pull the fruit together, I was crying out to Jesus. And he sent you. That is mercy. And when we are filled with mercy, we are more like Jesus Christ than what we have ever been. The more we are merciful, the more we are like Christ, and the more Christ's kingdom comes into focus. There was another time where I recognized Jesus' mercy. Many, 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 many years ago, I used to be a youth pastor. And we used to have this teenage Sunday school that would meet uh, in the little offices where I used to have, used to have my office. And we were having a discussion amongst my teenagers, and you know what teenagers are like. They're incredibly selfish, incredibly loud, and incredibly teenage-like, just like we all were. And we were talking, and I was talking about a fire that was in Nzama Yetu. Now, Nzama Yetu is just up the slopes of Hart Bay, very, very poor community, and they had just had a fire, 
and many of the, the shacks had been burnt. Many people were homeless because of that shack fire. And so we were talking, and so, one of the, so then at the end of the lesson, I said, okay, guys, anything exciting happening in the week that is to come? And so this one young lady, she says, yes, it's my birthday. So I said, oh, that's fantastic. I said, sure. So you're having a party? She says, yeah. I'm having a party with another 11 girls, and we're going to you know, go to my house, and we're going to watch movies. And I said, oh, that's absolutely fantastic. When she came back to Sunday school the next week, I said, so how was your party? She said, it was amazing. So I said, oh, that's great. Did you get gifts? She goes, no, I chose not to have gifts. So I said, okay, that's quite interesting. I said, so what did you do? She said, you told us about the fire in Zamayetu. So I told all my friends, please don't bring gifts to me. I've got enough. But rather bring stuff so that we can give it to those people who have just lost their homes. I'm sure there's lots of kids that don't have things that they really need. And so rather bring them something. And I don't need any more toys and clothes and all of that. That is mercy. When people change their priorities, when people move from their selfish, uh, selfish desires into being selfless servants for others. Another example, in Edgemead itself, there's a little boy who has the same condition as my son. And he, um, if you live in Edgemead, you probably have seen him. He gets uh, taken by a pram around. His mom keeps on pushing him up and down because he loves the fresh air. He loves to be outside and he loves the movement. And they often go down to the shopping center, but he is besotted. He's very focused on cars. And he wants to look in the cars. And there's times where he wants to get into the cars. It's not because he's naughty. It's not because he's disruptive. It's not because he wants to break in. But it's because he is so fascinated by cars. Now, on a specific day, there was a specific person that got incredibly upset that this child was coming near their car. And in fact, to the point where the poor mom had to try and get this little boy away from the car into the pram so that she could take him away. As she's taking him away, the car's following them and shouting insults at the child and the mother. And so the father decides to go to social media to try and bring this up and say, guys, please just be kind. This child's not malicious. He's not trying to do something that's naughty. He's just being himself and there's nothing that we can do. And if you want us to leave him in the house, that's no kind of humanity. And we thought this community was better. Well, someone read that post, and they are part of a beach buggy um, like club. And they all get in their beach buggies, and they go off, and they, they ride around, and they do their little rallies, and they have breakfast. Someone read that. And so what they said is, hey, we're all going to meet outside this kid's house. We're going to bring our beach buggies and let this child come and explore all of our beach buggies. So last weekend, there were 40 beach buggies parked outside this house. You can just imagine the pandemonium in the street. But this child came out, and it was like he was in heaven. He climbed through literally every single beach buggy. He was so in his element. And that is beauty. That is kindness. That is mercy. That is compelling love. And that's what Christmas is all about. Now, I know that I've been reading a lot of things lately, and they say, geez, you know, we're not allowed to say Merry Christmas anymore. We have to say Happy Holidays. And they're trying to take Christ out of Christmas. 
My brothers and sisters, you can't. Christ is in Christmas, no matter how you play the game. The problem is that sometimes people can't see Christ in Christmas because we're not merciful enough, because we're not kind enough, because we're not compassionate enough, because we're not compelling and moving outside the doors of the church enough to show that mercy, compassion, love, and kindness still exists in Jesus' name. There's a reason that Mary shouts that the merciful will be lifted up and the merciless will be dragged down. Because Jesus' kingdom is coming and it is most alive when it is during Christmas. No one can take Christ out of Christmas. No one. When we came and we gave our uh, tin fruit and our corned beef and our rice and everything for those who are less fortunate in our communities to go and give them a Christmas that they deserve, we put Christ in the middle of Christmas. It is the impact of Christ's people that makes Christmas, not lovely sayings. It is who we are. It is what we do. And so we look around us, and especially during this time, this week has been incredibly hard in terms of to be a South African because we look at the leadership, we look at the brokenness, we see the darkness that surrounds the country. And we go, this is too big, it's too horrible, it's too messed up. There's no ways that we can do anything about it. But let me tell you something. Mother Teresa once said, none of us, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love and that will change the world. And I can tell you that that is no truer word has ever been spoken. If we can do small things with great love, that changes the momentum, that changes the tide, that brings it back. Because what will God do? God brings down the powerful. God brings down the merciless. But he calls us to do the small things with kindness, compassion, gentleness, compelling love, so that we will start to change the tide. And that is how we win it back. Jesus came to start a revolution. Not a revolution that will be won with force or power, but a revolution that will be won by love and humility and kindness. And so that's what the people of St. Mark's have always been. And so let us go back into our streets and into our communities and into our workplaces and be that change. Because that's how we win the war. And that's what Jesus came to do. The words of the Magnificat are we magnify God and he magnifies us. And God will do the rest. He will bring down the powerful. He will bring down the merciless. He will bring down the arrogant and the corrupt. It is up to us to show God's love in the smallest, simplest of ways. And we can all do that. So my brothers and sisters, be challenged, but also live in hope that the victory has already been won and that we are all on the winning side if we choose mercy. So let us bow our heads. Dear Lord, there are many times where we are tempted to be merciless, tempted to choose the way of the world, tempted to serve our own desires. But Lord, when we hear about a 12-year-old, 13-year-old girl, that chooses to give up her dreams, her plans, her desires, 
and says, I will say yes to Jesus. I will be the servant. I will bear the Lord of all. And I will love that child so much that all that he will know is love. Then, Lord, we know that it is possible to change the tide. So, Lord, thank you for that light in the darkness. Thank you for your mother. Thank you for what she did to teach us the way of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, when we read the Magnificat, may it restore our hope, restore our joy, and may it make us sing in the same way that Mary did. So, Lord, let our lives sing your story through everything that we do, words, deeds, actions, attitudes. May we just be filled with mercy so that Christ will be the center of this time. We love you, Lord. We lift you up. We magnify you. We exalt you. And you will do the same for us. Amen.